introduction, and thanks to all of you for, for coming down this morning. Uh, can everyone hear me all right? It's not a problem? Good. Okay, small room. I can project to the back. So as, as we've just heard, what I'd like to do in the next hour or so is unpack some of what we know about the diversity of plants and animal, animals on Madagascar and show you some of the highlights of actually a recent trip that went to Madagascar only a few weeks ago that I was the trip scholar on. So I'd like to obviously give you a bit of a taster of why Madagascar is such a remarkable place, not only for scientists like me, but for everyone else. Why it's such a remarkable natural laboratory for studying evolutionary processes and biodiversity. So a good place to start is thinking about where Madagascar fits, not only in a geographical context, but in a biological context. So here we have a map from Conservation International highlighting a series of what are called biodiversity or wildlife hotspots. So these are regions of the world that, despite not occupying a huge amount of the Earth's surface area, contain about half of its living species, right? So these are areas where there are lots of species that are unique. They're found nowhere else in, on Earth. And such is the case with Madagascar. Madagascar is remarkable for having an endemic fauna. About 90% of the species we find on Madagascar today are found absolutely nowhere else on Earth. And understanding that great diversity of Malagasy plants and animals stems from not only understanding the biology and the evolutionary processes that have led to these modern species, but also coming to grips with the complicated and interesting geological history of the island. So Madagascar obviously is an island separated from the east coast of Africa. And we'll discover it actually has been separated from the east coast of Africa for a very, very long time. Okay? So creatures have evolved in what various evolutionary biologists are called the sort of splendid isolation of island life. So that's why we find creatures here that are found nowhere else on Earth. So obviously, if you think about the unique flora and fauna of Madagascar, you think of scenes like this with baobabs. These are remarkable trees with these enormously thick trunks, the genus Adansonia. The great diversity of baobab species alive today live in Madagascar. They're endemic to Madagascar. There are other species in Africa and, bizarrely enough, Australia, a connection we'll actually explore a little bit when we talk about the geology of Madagascar. But the vast majority of these curious trees are found in Madagascar. And these, of course, are joined with you know, more famous residents of the island, the lemurs. Here's one doing his thing. And what I should say is actually, wherever possible, I've tried to use images that were taken on these alumni trips. So all of these were taken either by me or other travelers on the trip. So this one is just one sunning himself, not bothered, getting his picture taken. A great diversity of chameleons. Madagascar hosts one of the greatest diversity of this really remarkable group of lizards, sort of famously known for changing color, but actually have these wonderful swiveling eyes that point in different directions, these wonderful grippy hands as well. And strange creatures found nowhere else. This is as close as the Malagasy fauna gets to a cat or a dog. This is a giant overgrown mongoose that eats lemurs. So we'll talk a little bit about these uh, a little bit later in the talk. 
So part of what has allowed Madagascar to generate and indeed retain so much biological diversity is the great diversity of habitat and climate types we find on the island. So Madagascar is, by any account, the Earth's fourth largest island, about twice as large as Britain. And you have, in a sense, the topography of the island can be summarized as a central chain of highlands with lowlands on either side. So on the right-hand side, this is a map giving elevation. So the lighter colors are higher areas, and you can see this core of mountains stretching down the center of the island and lowlands on either side. The predominant winds come off the Indian Ocean. They're very moist coming off the warm Indian Ocean, but they drop most of their rainfall as they're being forced up by this mountain range. It's a classic rain shadow effect where the western half of the island is very dry and the eastern half of the island is very wet. So you have rainforests on the eastern half of the island and then various dry habitats on the western half. So that's just a sort of cartoon diagram. You have this moist air coming off the Indian Ocean, being forced up in altitude, dropping its, its load of water. And so you've got these dry environments on the west coast of the island. And here's just a summary showing you the kinds of plant types that we find in different regions. And you can see that they're mapping on to that picture we got of relative elevation across the island. Okay? So we've got a strip of rainforest along the east coast adjacent to the Indian Ocean. The central highlands, which are not as arid, of course, as the far west coast, and indeed the famous spiny forests of southwest Madagascar. So across all of these different habitats, we obviously different, see different kinds of creatures that are adapted to local conditions. And so that's one of the engines of biological diversity on Madagascar, this diversity of habitats. We'll discover that that's actually not enough to explain the diversity of life on Madagascar. We have to look to geological causes and geological causes that took place in the distant past. So we have environments like the spiny desert, as I said, on the west coast of the island, full of all kinds of wonderful spiny and thorny plants and these lush rainforests on the eastern coast each of them associated with their own kinds of unique species. So the kinds of species you see in one part of Madagascar might be very different from the species you see in another. Okay. Now, what we need to start thinking about, though, are the processes that occurred in very deep time, in the deep geological record, that have led Madagascar to be so unique. As I hinted earlier, Madagascar has had a long independent history. It's been separated, actually, from the rest of the world by about 130 million years. Okay? That puts the separation of Madagascar from any other major landmass kind of smack in the middle of the age of dinosaurs. Okay? So that gives you some context for thinking about why Madagascar is so unique. We'll think a little bit more about how the plants and animals came to be there as well. And indeed, from the earliest days of the study of the, the Malagasy flora and fauna, biologists, zoologists, botanists realized there was something very unusual about the kinds of creatures found on Madagascar. It's not separated by an enormous distance from the east coast of Africa. The distances across the Mozambique Channel are measured in hundreds of kilometers rather than thousands of kilometers. But yet there's a very distinct divide 
between the kinds of creatures you find on mainland Africa and on Madagascar. And these kinds of disjunctions or breaks in the ranges of different kinds of closely related species caught the attention of scientists concerned with the distribution of organisms. We call these scientists biogeographers. They're interested in knowing why creatures have the geographical distributions they do, understanding the evolutionary and geological causes for modern organismal distributions. So one such scientist was this fellow here, Sclater, and he worked on mammals, the mammals of Madagascar. And he noticed among the primates, the lemurs, the famous lemurs, the closest relatives of the lemurs are found not only in parts of Africa, but also in parts of Asia. And so he speculated that at some point, all of these regions must have been connected to one another on the basis of the distribution of lemurs and their close relatives, he hypothesized a vast lost continent, which he called Lemuria. Obviously, based on the evidence of lemurs, it seems a fitting name. So this was a very live hypothesis. There are lots of hypotheses of sort of lost continents in the late 19th century. Although if you look up Lemuria now, it's sort of been hijacked as a bizarre kind of eastern counterpart to Atlantis. There's a lot of New Age crystal-y stuff about Lemuria. But it did have very serious roots. Okay? So there's a biological argument for the continuity of different parts of the world in the past, perhaps separated now by oceans, but once joined by land bridges that have been lost or submerged under the oceans. We have a geologist counterpart to Sclater, Austrian, actually born in London, Edward Seuss, and he suspected there were once land bridges between these different parts of the world, between South America, Africa, India, Madagascar. But he bases arguments on geology rather than biology. He said that you see similar kinds of rocks in these southern continents. And those similar rocks betray a shared heritage, a shared genealogy, if you will, of those different land masses. There was some kind of evidence that they were once connected, even though today they're separated. And so he names this hypothetical landmass Gondwana land, after the Gondwana region of north central India. But really, the synthesis, the great understanding that came in the early part of the 20th century and then later in the 20th century, as was subsequently confirmed with other techniques, was the union of biological and geological arguments for thinking about the Earth and the Earth's surface as being dynamic and the continents, rather than being static, being moving entities that might have been joined and then sort of ripped apart by geological processes in the distant past. And these ideas really came to the fore in the mind and writing of this guy here, Alfred Wegener. He was actually a meteorologist by training um, in slightly grisly fashion. I mean, I, a lot of scientists, I think, have these pictures, particularly from of, of this vintage. This is his last photograph. He, uh, he died on a field expedition um, at the poles. So that's a bit sad. But he noted, and I think he came to the, the topics of geology with the fresh and open mind of an outsider, as I said, trained as a meteorologist, he wrote a book called The Theory of the Continents and Oceans. And he thought he had cracked this nut. He thought he had the solution to the problem of these similarities between distant continents showing close correspondences. Certainly, people had long noticed that 
the west coast of Africa and the east coast of South America looked pretty similar. You know, you cut them out of a map on your wall, and you can actually put them back together again. And it's more than just that. So Wegener noticed that there were similar distributions of not only geological deposits. You can go to the west coast of Africa and see geological deposits you can match up precisely with the east coast of South America, but similar kinds of fossil creatures. Fossil creatures that we think probably couldn't get across very, very large ocean barriers. And so Wegener hypothesized that at one point, all of these southern continents, including Madagascar right there, were joined up to make a supercontinent. Again, he was, in, in effect, arguing for Gondwana, this great southern landmass. So he cited early relatives of mammals, this creature here called Cynognathus, some freshwater reptiles, creatures that were living in lakes, not seagoing creatures, another kind of primitive mammal relative, and then plants that had broad distributions across these southern landmasses in their geological records during the late part of the Paleozoic and the early part of the Mesozoic, some 240 million years ago. Just to take a look at these lines of evidence, one of these fossil plants that Wegener noticed had a wide distribution across these southern landmasses was a tree called Glossopteris, so-called because they sort of tongue-like leaves, found widely distributed across southern landmasses and rocks of Triassic age. This creature here, Mesosaurus, it's one of these small swimming reptiles that would have lived in lakes. We find it at lake deposits. This projection of the fossil on the screen is actually substantially larger than these animals actually were. They're about that big. These are of Permian age, the very end of, of the Paleozoic. And here's some of those early mammal relatives. It's a creature called Lystrosaurus, um, which is a, a, a creature called a Dicynodont. Um, in more technical terminology, it kind of looks like a very bizarre sort of ancient pig. So the wide distribution of these creatures across southern continents, combined with geological continuity and the correspondences between coastlines, led Wegener to hypothesize that at one point these land masses were all united and subsequently drifted apart. The mechanism for that rifting and drifting, of course, was completely unknown. But here, Wegener had the evidence, at least he thought, showed that at one point they were joined together as one. Of course, as is often the case with these kinds of proposals, it was met with great suspicion. And his hypothesis was effectively consigned to the, the waste bin of geological history for the next set of decades until a series of unexpected discoveries from rather unexpected sources. How is it that we actually convinced ourselves the continents are moving around? Well, it comes through a very funny quirk of the Earth system. We all know that the Earth has a magnetic pole, right? It's what we use when we use a compass. So, in effect, the Earth is a great big magnet because it's got an iron core, and field lines of this magnetic field issue from the South Pole and dive back in 
to the magnetic north pole. A curious aspect of the Earth's magnetic field, and one we don't entirely understand, but we can certainly demonstrate in the geological record, is that it reverses for reasons we don't know. But it goes through intervals of normal polarity, which is, of course, what we've called the polarity of the Earth's magnetic field today, and reverse polarity, which is when it's the opposite of what it is today. And we can go and look in the geological record, and we can tell what the polarity of the magnetic field was because rocks contain magnetic minerals. And when they're deposited, these magnetic minerals will preferentially align with the direction of these field lines. Okay? So we can detect when the pole was reversed. But there's another interesting thing we can get out of this. The orientation and the angle at which these field lines go into the Earth vary as a function of latitude. So the angle of those magnetic minerals relative to the horizontal, right, the level at which they were deposited, tells you where the rock was in terms of north or south. And so what you actually find is that the signals change over time. Continents weren't always in the same spot. But that gets us so far. What about the way in which continents move around? What's the mechanism, the engine, for continental drift, as we call it today? Well, the solution rests with a slightly strange quirk of history. So, in the 1940s, people were very interested in discovering magnetic anomalies that were underwater, right? So a lot of technology went into discovering, basically, techniques for detecting magnetic fields underwater, basically generated by big bits of metal that we put under there to put other big bits of metal that were floating on the top of the water at the bottom of the water. So a lot of technology went into tools for detecting submarines. And these same tools, these detectors for magnetic anomalies, went on the market around about 1945. There's lots of surplus detectors you could trawl behind ships and detect magnetic anomalies. So in the west coast of the US, some scientists decided, well, well, we'll buy up some of this kit, drag it across the seafloor, and see what we find. What they found were alternating bands of normal and reverse polarity. And in this zebra stripe pattern on the seafloor's polarity, they in effect discovered the way in which continents were drifting apart. Seafloors were spreading. Seafloor is being generated. And as seafloor is being generated, growing out from a spreading center or ridge, it had stamped on it the polarity of the magnetic field at that time. So as you step away from the ridge, you see alternating patterns of magnetic polarity. And so we've got a little cartoon showing you this. So at the top, we have the ridge just starting to spread. Okay? And so that's during one interval of polarity. And then time goes on. And we've got a different polarity, and so on. And so if you look at either side of these ridges where the ocean floor is spreading apart and driving continents apart from one another, you see this alternating pattern. And I don't have to just produce cartoons, right? You can also go to places where the seafloor is spreading apart, right? This is on Iceland, of course, which straddles the mid-Atlantic ridge, where the Atlantic Ocean is opening and spreading. 
So if you fly to the States this year and you fly to the States next year, you have traveled you know, a few more centimeters than you did this year. So it's very, very slow, but of course we're dealing with the enormity of geological time. And here's a survey. It's quite striking. Here we have the Mid-Atlantic Ridge, where the Atlantic Ocean is rifting apart here. This, of course, are, we've got South America and Africa, which were once joined as part of Gondwanaland. Here is Madagascar as well. And these parallel lines in these different colors tell you the polarity of that part of the seafloor. So look close up in the North Atlantic, which is slightly clearer. You've got these alternating colors, and as they go through the spectrum from hot to cool, right, from sort of blue to bright red, that's indicating shifts in polarity. So these symmetrical patterns on either side of this mid-Atlantic ridge in effect the ghost of the spreading of the Atlantic Basin. What we can do as well is estimate how old the seafloor is in those parts of the ocean. And that provides us with constraints on when different parts, different land masses were separated from one another. So here we've got a diagram that shows the age of the seafloor in different regions. Going from down here, 180 million years ago, this is during the Jurassic, during the age when all those famous deposits on the south coast of England that yield things like ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs and ammonites were deposited. And then this is relatively recent stuff. I mean, so my, my geological colleagues would dismiss these rocks, which are only nine million years old as sort of topsoil. But <laughs> what we see here is that some of the very oldest oceanic crust, this deep blue color, is actually separating Madagascar from Africa. Okay? Bit of fun trivia you can take home from this talk is that the landmass that Madagascar was most recently connected to is not, in fact, Africa, but India, which is subsequently sort of split off of Madagascar and barreled into the underbelly of Asia, throwing up the Himalayas. Okay. So Madagascar has been separated, isolated, for a very, very long time, much more than 100 million years. So taking together all these lines of evidence we now have as geologists, we can reconstruct the history of, of Madagascar and other southern landmasses. So if we start 400 million years ago, this is way, way back, very hard to recognize just about anything. To give you some context, the, this time in history is when the first bony fishes evolved. The group of fishes that not only includes, incidentally, bizarre fishes such as ourselves that have sort of gone onto land and lost their fins, but more familiar things like cod and salmon. So this group had just emerged some 400 million years ago. This is before vertebrate animals got onto land. This is before there were complex forests on land, a very different kind of place. And what I'd like to do is now fast forward through a series of reconstructions of continental arrangements until we get to something we can more or less recognize. So as you see, all the land masses are joined together as one supercontinent called Pangaea, which you may have heard about. And 
the initial fragmentation of Pangaea corresponds to a separation into northern and southern halves, the southern half of which is Gondwana. So here we have all those Gondwanan landmasses. Here you can sort of make out the shape of North America, Eurasia, there's Africa, South America, Indian Madagascar tucked away in here, and then down here we've got Australia and Antarctica. And if we just trace this through, we can take our way to more modern times, what I'd kind of consider the, the beginning of, of the modern world biologically, the very end of the age of dinosaurs, some 66 million years ago. And here you can see we've got a widely opened Atlantic. India has already peeled away from Madagascar, leaving it in complete isolation. So Madagascar has been completely isolated from any other landmass for 90 million years, isolated from Africa for at least 130 million years. And this, of course, marks sort of the beginning of the world as we know it with the sort of worst weekend in the history of Earth, right? Giant space rock falls out of the sky, curtains for the dinosaurs, but good news for our distant ancestors. So that's a good point to then sort of synthesize all of this. And if you want, we've watched Gondwana split up. But through the magic of technology, we can also watch it come back together again. So we're watching the process in reverse from a slightly different angle. So it might be easier to visualize this going from something you recognize today to something very, very different, this combination of continents that in the modern are separated by vast marine barriers. So that gives us a bit of context for thinking about the geological history of Madagascar. The profound thing about Madagascar is its incredible isolation from the rest of the world for long periods of geological time. And when we think about the distribution of creatures, we have to think about the, the ways in which organisms and their evolutionary histories interact, interface with the kinds of processes we observe in geology. So one of the great contributions of plate tectonics and continental drift, of course, was to geology and understanding the way the Earth worked as a system, but also to biogeography. You could now think about how the distributions of organisms, of different species of plants and animals, might be modulated by the way in which continents were moving about. So here's one great example involving these fun guys, lungfishes. These are your closest relatives among the fishes. So these guys are more closely related to any of us than they are to a salmon, for example. Okay? And they live in fresh water, and as their name suggests, they breathe air. They've got lungs. Today, they're found in South America, Africa, and Australia. They are freshwater creatures. They live in, typically, uh, seasonal environments. They often make, some of them make sort of muddy cocoons for themselves. They bury themselves in the mud and wait for the rainy season to come back. How do we explain this distribution? Might it be that some plucky young lungfish decided it had enough of Africa and it was going to swim to South America and then one of its mates sort of swam that to Australia? Possibly not. <laughs> What we can do is we can think about 
how these distributions might have been affected by past geological events. And of course, if we think about the distant geological past, a Gondwanan world, of course, these land masses were joined up together. So we see a lot of creatures that are widely distributed across southern land masses. One potential hypothesis to explain that biogeographic pattern, that distribution, is something that biogeographers called vicariants. So this refers to cases where creatures that are widely separated by barriers to getting somewhere else, they haven't done anything active, they've just stayed at home, and the land masses have moved underneath their feet, or I guess fins in this case, right? So that's one potential hypothesis to explain these distributions. So one reason Madagascar might be so unusual, and one way we can under, may perhaps understand the kinds of creatures that live there is through this mechanism of vicariance. Maybe we'd expect to find close relatives of Malagasy species on other southern land masses, simply because we now know they have a shared geological history. That, that can be contrasted with the ideas of dispersal. And so implicit in a lot of these early hypotheses of land bridges were these ideas that creatures had to actively get from one place to the other. Before we had this vision of a dynamic Earth, right, we had hypotheses that creatures must have gotten from one place to another. So either that involves these kinds of land bridges, okay? Here's a sort of series of cartoons put together by, by this fellow here, George Gaylord Simpson, a really influential vertebrate paleontologist and evolutionary biologist who thought a lot about the distributions of organisms, um, and actually a staunch opponent of plate tectonics and continental drift when it first came on the scene. But these dispersal hypotheses, particularly invoking land bridges, terrestrial connections, make a series of predictions. If you've got a stretch of land going between two otherwise isolated regions, it's hard to imagine how that stretch of land could filter different kinds of creatures. You'd expect a sort of even interchange, right? It's not like creatures from landmass A can only travel to landmass B, but creatures on landmass B, for whatever reason, can't go to A. So this idea that it's not only certain kinds of animals that can cross land bridges, or it's not unidirectional transport across land bridges. So maybe land bridges are not the way to understand all of these patterns of distribution, to understand all of these dispersals. And Simpson, particularly with respect to the Malagasy problem, invoked another hypothesis something you call the sweepstakes dispersal. So the thing about the Malagasy fauna is that it's just, with respect to mammals at least, very, very strange. There are only a few groups of mammals that are found there. All of them are relatively small-bodied or would have small-bodied relatives outside of Madagascar. We don't have anything like elephants or giraffes or lions on Madagascar. What we do have are things like lemurs, a group of creatures called tenrecs, which are a little bit like shrews, but it turns out closely really to elephants, bizarrely enough. These endemic Malagasy carnivores, which are kind of derived, as we now know, from mongooses. And then a single set of rodents is also found on Madagascar. What Simpson suggested is that even across very, very major barriers, you might have vanishingly rare events where creatures are able to disperse across these kinds of marine barriers. 
Okay? And these events might be incredibly rare, improbable, but they become very likely over very long spans of geological time. So running throughout the entire study of the Malagasy biota is this very strong thread of the relative influence of vicariance, this passive process, a process by which creatures arrive in certain places that are very distant from other places simply by staying put, against this active mechanism where creatures actually go and cross barriers. And the way in which we can distinguish between these hypotheses is trying to figure out or estimate when groups of creatures originated and if the timeline for their evolutionary history matches the geological sequence of events or if they're too young to have stayed in place. Remember, Madagascar drifted away from Africa a very long time ago, 130 million years ago, as I said, in the middle of the age of dinosaurs. Most of these mammal groups, all of these mammal groups, hadn't evolved yet. So we can't simply invoke vicariance for these mammal groups. It looks increasingly likely that dispersal has played a major role in generating the very unusual biology of Madagascar. So if you talk to anyone under a, about, I guess, the age of 10, well, actually, that's not true, because one of my graduate students said, this is a very good movie and I should watch it, so it made me feel a bit old. Um, effectively, sweepstakes dispersal is the entire premise of this film. These animals escape from a zoo in Central Park. They're going to go to Kenya or something, and they get shipwrecked on Madagascar, and they, you know, they deal with the lemurs. I don't know. I, I just read a summary on the internet. I haven't seen it. But effectively, <laughs> in a bizarre case of sort of art, if I can call it that, imitating life, there seems to be a, a strong case that sweepstakes dispersal was a major factor in generating the modern Malagasy fauna. And of course, these are precisely the kinds of creatures that haven't made it to Madagascar from Africa, in part because you might imagine that a marine barrier is a much more substantial barrier to very large kinds of creatures. These guys actually have made it. Hippos made it to Madagascar. And maybe that's not so surprising. You know, they're aquatic mammals. These big terrestrial guys know the kinds of things that did make it to Madagascar are small. They tend to be groups that have um, strategies where they can go into a state of torpor or hibernation. They tend to be associated with trees, arboreal habit, habitats. It's hypothesized that maybe with some of these very big storm events that you would have had in East Africa in the geological past, and we know in the geological past there were lots of river drainages that emptied off the east coast of the continent, that you might have had large masses of vegetation swept out, very, very rare cases, but, you know, logs or something that had nesting proto-lemurs in it or something like that. So these are the kinds of hypotheses that people have proposed to understand the origin of the modern Malagasy fauna. What we'd really desperately like, and, you know, speaking from my own perspective, I'm a paleontologist by training, is a good fossil record for just that part of Madagascar's history. So here I've got the interval during which we think a lot of the modern groups that are so iconic in Madagascar, things like lemurs, would have evolved. Down here we've got the age of dinosaurs and down here we've got the Paleozoic. So down here is when Madagascar started peeling away from the rest of the world. 
we've got a very good sample of fossils from the end of the age of dinosaurs. And the kind of cool thing about this is that even from the dinosaurs, we know that as an island in the Mesozoic, Madagascar was already strange. The dinosaurs we find on Madagascar are found nowhere else. They're very, very peculiar things. But unfortunately, during the so-called age of mammals, the trail goes cold. There's no fossil record in Madagascar, at least of terrestrial creatures, land-living creatures, from the end of the age of dinosaurs up to tens of thousands of years ago. So a huge gap in our understanding. So by the time you pick up fossils again, they either belong to groups that are still alive or groups that went extinct very recently, possibly as a consequence of human arrival on Madagascar, which again was a relatively recent event, as we'll discover at the very end of this talk. So what we now have in terms of our understanding of the origin of Madagascar's unique fauna and flora is a view that many groups probably arrived on the island in the Cenozoic, this age of mammals, sometime after the extinction of dinosaurs, sometime more recently than 66 million years ago. And so here's a diagram showing you the kinds of creatures, various kinds of reptiles, amphibians, of course the famous lemurs, and when they might have arrived. So down here is when the dinosaurs went extinct. Up here is the modern day. Okay. Now some of these require special explanation. Things like amphibians, for example, should be very bad at dispersing, should be very bad at crossing marine barriers. Of course, amphibians do a lot of gas exchange and fluid exchange across their skin. That's why it's moist. But that also means that they don't like being dropped in salt water. It's very bad for them. Okay? Reptiles, not so much of a problem. Groups like birds, however, we don't really need to explain how they might have arrived at Madagascar. They're very good at crossing barriers. Right? They can fly across marine barriers. So they're slightly less mysterious. But it's these terrestrial creatures, these land-living creatures, that we'd really like to know more about. And what we can do using tools other than the fossil record, we can use evolutionary trees, sort of family trees for different kinds of organisms built on the basis of their DNA. We can investigate the genomes of these creatures and see what clues those have about their timing of evolutionary origin and their relationships to one another. And we can use this to estimate, first of all, who are the closest relatives of creatures on Madagascar. And secondly, when might they have arrived? And here's a diagram doing just that. So here we've got colonization events toward Madagascar. So these are these dispersal events, when different groups seem to have arrived. So back here we've got the Cretaceous. This is the end of that age of dinosaurs. And these lighter shades of gray, we've got the age of mammals. And what you see is there's a peak in colonization events in the very end of the age of dinosaurs, the beginning of the age of mammals, and that most of these close relatives come from Africa. Okay? Even though, as I said earlier, the last part of the world that Madagascar was attached to is India. The dominant signal seems to be African. So there's creatures coming from the east coast of Africa to Madagascar in this remote part of the geological past, the very dawn of the age of mammals. So the kind of picture we get then 
using these different tools available to us as paleontologists, biologists, biogeographers, is one of a series of actually separate colonization events. If we had a land bridge that existed at a certain time, let's say for five million years, and all these creatures arrived on the land bridge, we might expect our estimated times of arrival to be pretty congruent, right? If the door opened and then it shut, everyone went through at the same time. But what we actually see is that these different groups, the carnivores from Madagascar, the rodents in Madagascar, the tenrex, this curious group of, of, of hedgehog and shoe-like creatures, and the lemurs, all arrived at different times. So it's not simply a case of a corridor opening up. This really is what you'd predict under sweepstakes dispersal. These rare events that happen very infrequently. And these were the lucky colonists who arrived. Now, a good question to ask is, why are these things that have only happened in the distant geological past? I mean, the, the Mozambique Channel is wide, but it's not that wide. Why is it that dispersal events across this channel should be so rare? Why should we even perceive this as a major obstacle to organisms shifting their distributions? Well, this lies actually in ocean currents. There's a very, very strong current. The South Equatorial Current comes in north of the tip of Madagascar and diverges into a current directed north along the coast of Tanzania and Kenya, and then south. You basically have a jet of water shooting down the Mozambique Channel. So every, anything that might drift out here isn't going to end up in Madagascar. It's going to end up in the Southern Ocean. Okay? So currents in the modern day are a substantial barrier to dispersal. But of course, we can't think about this with our sort of modern day hats on. If we're looking in the geological past, we have to think about how conditions might have been different. And of course, circulation patterns would have been different because land masses were in different places. And so if you actually model ocean currents during those intervals when we think a lot of these migration events took place, down here is Madagascar, okay, off the east coast of Africa. We actually find that some of the most powerful currents are directed from the east coast of Africa toward Madagascar. And we can look at sort of these simulations. So these are very computationally involved simulations that, that uh, physical oceanographers are interested in looking at the patterns of flow in ancient oceans as a consequence of what we think we know was going on at the time, but particularly the deployment of continents across, across the world, right, which was different than it was today. So the position of Madagascar during this interval in the early part of the Age of Mammals, when a lot of these groups seem to have made it over, was different relative to the equatorial currents. And that actually meant that there was a strong current flowing, as I said, from the east coast of Africa to the west coast of Madagascar. So perhaps there is a case of a, a window for very rare dispersal events that's now been closed by a consequence of Madagascar moving, and in a sense, relative to these currents. So maybe the dispersal window is, is now shut. 
So now in the sort of last part of the talk, I'd like to discuss some of the unique creatures on Madagascar. I've obviously talked a lot about how we think different groups of animals and plants might have arrived there, but let's actually think a little bit about the biology. I mean, that's why, why people go there to see these remarkable creatures seen nowhere else on Earth. So Madagascar's amphibians, about 250 species, only frogs. There are three living groups of amphibians, right? There are frogs, there are the salamanders and newts, and there's this very bizarre group of creatures called Sicilians, which are these sort of long snake-like amphibians. The only amphibians we find on Madagascar are, are frogs. Okay. And only two of these species are found anywhere outside of Madagascar. And it seems actually very likely that those two species that are found in Madagascar today hitchhiked on canoes or ships or something else. It seems very unlikely they would have crossed these marine barriers because, as I said, amphibians face serious osmotic problems when confronted with salt water. Okay. And just to show you, these are, are not photographs taken on the trip, but we do have some nice pictures of amphibians. Here's a, a lovely tree frog that we saw on one of our night walks. So unfortunately, the diversity of amphibians in Madagascar is such that many of them actually don't have common names. Well, they have common Malagasy names, but my Malagasy is a bit rusty. So here's one of the creatures we saw. And of course, these tree frogs are obviously tied to very wet environments, but they also don't live in sort of ponds or pools in the way that you know, frogs you might be familiar with do. And as a consequence, they also lay their eggs in these spectacular sort of masses of frog spawn. And so in this one, you can actually see tadpoles at varying stage development. So that's their little yolk sac, a little tadpole body. And they will grow up and eventually drip out of this frog spawn into, into underlying water. So these were laid in leaves above a, a shallow pond. And of course, Madagascar also famously has a great diversity of chameleons. Um, many, many species of chameleons, and in fact, They've got a very interesting pattern of biogeography. It seems that there were multiple invasions of Madagascar by chameleons, and that actually Madagascar has seeded some of the Indian Ocean islands with, it, with their chameleons. So there have not only been dispersals to Madagascar, but Madagascar has also sent some of its species out further to some of these smaller islands of the Indian Ocean. And Madagascar includes not only a great diversity of chameleons in terms of numbers of species, but a great variety. So biologists and paleontologists think about diversity in many different ways. So diversity in terms of counts of numbers of species is something we call richness. It's just an inventory. How many things are there? But you can think about another way of measuring diversity, and that's something we call disparity. And that's how different creatures are in their appearance from one another or their ecology from one another. So one thing that's very clear is that the chameleons of Madagascar are very disparate. So there's a creature called Bruxia. That is a match head. So tiny, the world's smallest chameleons. We have a Parsons chameleon here, sort of lounging about on a branch. And they are a meter in length when you stretch them out all the way, right? I mean, their tails are usually coiled up, so they don't look, you know, it's not a meter trunk. But if you pull out their enormously long tails, then they can about a meter in length. And we saw lots and lots of very wonderful chameleons, some out 
during the day, but it's another one out during the day in a dry part of the, the country. So this previous one is living in a rainforest environment. This one is in one of the, the spiny dry forests in the western part of the island. But where you really see lots and lots of chameleons is at night. So as part of these trips, we do walks through forests or spiny forests during the day, but some of the opportunities to see particular kinds of wildlife arise only at night. So obviously, creatures have not only partitioned up Madagascar by kinds of habitat, but also time of the day. So you've got completely different creatures you might see at night versus during the day. So here's one just doing his thing. And some more chameleons. Different shapes and sizes. Just hanging out on the tip of a leaf. Just having a nice night before this group of tourists ambled up. And many of them have these, you know, beautifully produced kind of comedy noses, you know, horns and all kinds of elaborate cranial structures. And associated with the wonderful chameleons of Madagascar are a diversity of geckos. These are another group of reptiles. You might be familiar with them as the ones that sort of scurry along and can, you know, walk upside down on, on ceilings and things like this. They've got these wonderful pads on their toes. They're actually studied by people interested in sort of going and looking at biological structures and, and sort of reverse engineering them to make things that are useful for us. So these guys can cling on to glass and all kinds of wonderful things. Most geckos are nocturnal. So you may have seen them sort of scurrying around walls at night if you've ever gone to someplace warm. This is a nocturnal one that I have a picture of it during the day inside of a tree, but Madagascar uniquely has quite a diversity of daytime geckos that come out during the day, originally called day geckos. It's what they're actually called, day geckos. So scientists are not always the most inspired of people when they come up with these sorts of names. Here's a day gecko we saw in the rainforest habitats in the eastern part of Madagascar. But of course, I think the creatures that people are most familiar with in Madagascar are, of course, the remarkable mammals that we find there. Now, some of these will probably be familiar to you already, the lemurs. I think many people have heard of these or seen them. But there are other groups of mammals there as well. So here, if we take a family tree of mammals, this is sort of the genealogy of modern mammals. This group here with the different colors these are the so-called placental mammals. These are the ones that give birth to sort of fully developed young. In contrast to marsupials, which are Australian and South American, it's actually a Gondwanan connection there as well. It might surprise you to learn that it might you, we actually know from looking at genetic data that Australian marsupials are a subset of South American marsupials. So Australian marsupials are, in a sense, invaders from another part of the world. So this diverse set of mammals, but only a few different groups of creatures that we find in Madagascar today. And some of these are easy enough to understand how they might have arrived there. Things like sea cows. Well, they're you know, found in the sea. They sort of swum there. We've got whales. Again, not much to explain there. Bats. 
So let's throw all those guys out and see what's left. So we have creatures which are kinds of animals that are generally pretty small. Tenrex, as I said, which are these kind of shrew-like creatures but turn out to be closely related to things like elephants and sea cows and aardvarks, part of an African radiation of mammals called afrotheres, which just means African beasts. Remember, scientists are not always the most original with names. And then we've got the lemurs, which are a kind of primate, so they're closely related to you and me, monkeys and apes. Rodents, one species of shrew, and then a series of carnivorous mammals. You can take a look at some of these examples. So, tenrecs are quite an interesting group of creatures. As I said, they're closely related to things like sea cows and elephants and other continental African creatures. But what they've done is they're doing similar kinds of jobs out there in the world of nature to the kinds of insectivorous creatures, which are called eulipatiflins, I'm sorry, some of these are a bit of a mouthful, things like shrews and hedgehogs that we'd see here in Europe, here are their ecological analogues in Madagascar. So there are things that are called hedgehog tenrecs for fairly obvious reasons, and things called shrew tenrecs for fairly obvious reasons. But these two are more closely related to one another, and indeed more closely related to an elephant than either is to these ones. So in Madagascar, they've converged, convergent evolution, the same functional and ecological pressures have sculpted these creatures into very similar lifestyles and very similar structures and anatomies. And some of these are truly remarkable. They show kinds of features and adaptations we actually find nowhere else. So some of these hedgehogs with spiny quills actually produce sound by rubbing their quills together, a bit like a cricket would rub bits of its exoskeleton together. Those are the only mammals that employ this technique of making sound called stridulation. So they make sounds by rubbing their quills together. I think it's lovely, sort of these tenrecs singing to one another in the forest with their quills. These, as I said, were examples of the endemic, the native carnivorous mammals of Madagascar. Each of them named at least these two, because they look similar to mainland counterparts. So there's a Malagasy civet. So civets are sort of superficially fox-like carnivores you find in places like Africa. A Malagasy mongoose, again, looks like a mongoose. This creature here that looks a bit like a, I don't know, a pint-sized puma or something, called a fossa. So in the past, people thought that these were not particularly closely related to one another. Perhaps they thought that the fossa and the Malagasy civet were related to the civets of Africa, whereas the Malagasy mongoose was actually a mongoose. Well, now that we've got genetic tools to investigate these problems, what did we find? We actually found that all of these are more closely related to one another. They share a common ancestor, right? That brave carnivoran colonist probably not through any choice of its own, that ended up on Madagascar sometime 25 million years ago. And they found a world with empty niches that they've diversified into. So you've got, effectively, a mongoose trying its best to be a civet. You've got a mongoose who's decided, I like this mongoose gig, that's fine, I'll stick with that. And then a mongoose trying to become a cat. 
Okay? So all of these are each other's closest relatives. They've converged, again, this remarkable pattern we see in island faunas. But of course, the, the most famous creatures on Madagascar are the lemurs. There are about a hundred odd species of lemurs on Madagascar. And that stands against something like 250 species of monkeys across the rest of the world. Okay? So they're actually remarkably diverse given the amount of area that we actually have in Madagascar. And this is their range all throughout the island. So they're a remarkable group of primates. They're a very early branch of the primate tree of life. And so they tell us a little bit about what conditions were like in very ancient primates. But they're not, in a sense, our ancestors or living fossils. They're just an earlier branch of the tree. And they've acquired their own specializations while we've gotten ours. One thing about them you notice is they've got wet noses, a bit like a dog or a cat. Okay? That's not something that other primates have. Lemurs rely quite a bit on smell, whereas other primates are very visual. Okay? So they've got a great long snout, which contains the organs of olfaction, and this wet nose, and then also a series of other sensory organs in the snout that we've lost. They also have some unique features. Their lower incisors, the lower teeth at the front of the jaw, are modified as a comb. So they've got gaps between their teeth and actually use this for grooming. It's called a tooth comb. And as you can see, they've got this very produced snout, very different from what you see in ourselves or monkeys or apes. Again, betraying that reliance on olfaction, on smell. So here's some pictures of different groups of lemurs that we saw. This is a mouse lemur, the smallest of the lemurs on Madagascar, indeed the smallest of living primates. The smallest mouse lemurs about sort of, uh, well, they weigh much less than a kilo. Right? These are tiny little guys, hence the name. Come out at night, so they're nocturnal. Here's a sportive lemur. So the mouse lemur is very appropriately named, small. Um, sportive lemurs are unhappily named. Um, so far as we can tell, and they just sit in logs all day. So maybe this is the mechanism by which they got to Madagascar. They couldn't be asked, oh, my tree's falling down. It's going to be swept into the Mozambique Channel. Well, I'll just, I'll just stay put. It'll be fine. So there's a sportive lemur during the day not being particularly sportive. Here's a bamboo lemur. As advertised, they eat bamboo, as you'd hope. So I should say these are all pictures that were taken either, either by me or, or other uh, people on the trip. These are the true lemurs in the family Lemuridae. So this is a, a white ruffed lemur. And the famous ringtails. So being a paleontologist and geologist in background, I had to get this lovely rock exposure in the background with the lemur as well. There's one up in the tree eating some fruit. And again, betraying their the degree to which they rely on smell, often when you see other primates eating food, they'll look at it very closely. But these guys don't look at it. They sniff it very closely and then decide whether or not it's any good. Here's a, a brown lemur. Some of them are very friendly. So here's one making a new friend. And then a series of, of uh, different lemurs called sifakas. 
These are found across Madagascar, but these include within them the famous dancing lemurs. You may have seen some of these lemurs that sort of leap sideways across the ground, which is a fact, in fact, a way they've co-opted their leaping behavior in the trees. So they leap sideways from, from tree to tree. Some of them have decided that's actually quite a good way to get around when they're on the ground. So this is one called a diadem shafaka. This is a cockerel shafaka. And then a varro shafaka. And we also saw the very largest of the living lemurs, the indri. So we saw the very smallest and the very largest lemurs. These guys are arboreal. They eat principally leaves. But as it turns out, although there's a great diversity of lemurs on Madagascar today, it's actually a shadow of their past diversity. Here we've got a human silhouette, the largest living lemur, the Indri, but there's a great diversity of lemurs that went extinct relatively recently on Madagascar. Some of these reached truly enormous sizes, well over 100 kilos. So if we look at the largest and smallest lemurs today, those are their skulls. Here's a sample of extinct lemur skulls. Many of these went extinct within hundreds or even a few thousands of years of the modern day. So just to show you how big some of these creatures are, here's a gorilla skull and at the same scale, one of these sub-fossil lemurs, one of these creatures that went extinct very, very recently. And you don't have to go to Madagascar to look at sub-fossil lemur remains. This afternoon, you can go over to the Oxford University Museum of Natural History, and there are fossil lemur remains on display, collected by this fellow here, Paul Methuen, who, in the days before the First World War, went to Madagascar explicitly to collect sub-fossil lemur remains. And they're now on display and in the collections at the museum. And some of his specimens have given us really vital clues as to what happened to these lemurs. Here are bones of one of these sub-fossil lemurs showing cut marks. So these creatures were actually hunted and butchered by early human inhabitants of Madagascar. And if we look here, each of these columns represents a different species of extinct lemur. Each of these bars here is an age estimate for a particular bone based on radiometric dating. What we see is that actually most of these guys hung around quite late. They survived after the first arrival of humans, and then some of them might have actually survived long enough to when Europeans had discovered Madagascar. So really, really recent. Maybe only as recently as 1500, some of these went extinct. There were also dwarf hippopotamuses as well on Madagascar until relatively recently. Here's a normal-sized hippopotamus skull, and here's the skeleton of one of these dwarf Malagasy hippopotamuses. But again, the smoking gun comes in the form of these bones that have been butchered by humans. But of course, the most iconic and famous of perhaps the extinct Malagasy creatures is the elephant bird, shown here. Again, there's a cast of an elephant bird egg in the museum and one of the massive limb bones of the elephant bird. Their eggs were truly enormous, a circumference about a meter, and they certainly were the heaviest birds that we know of. And again, they went extinct relatively recently, and they're actually written European accounts. 
So this gentleman here, De Flacon, he was the governor general of Madagascar in the 1600s. And in his enormous volume on the natural history and sort of productions of Madagascar, he writes of a creature called Vurapatra, a large bird which inhabits remote parts of the island and lays giant eggs. So here we have an account from early Europeans in Madagascar recording the presence of these giant extinct birds. And of course, you might say, well, I know there are giant birds on South America and Africa, Australia, and there were until relatively recently on New Zealand, Madagascar. Maybe this, this is a good example of vicariance, right? Giant birds have great long legs, but they're not going to wade across the South Atlantic, right? And they're not really going to fly, or are they? So perhaps they too, like the lungfishes, stayed put. But we can begin to test that, and actually a study that just came out this summer in science, looking at the DNA of these modern giant birds and their recently extinct relatives, finally managed to extract DNA from elephant bird bones. So they're shown by this icon. So you might expect that giant flightless birds on close parts of the Gondwanan continent, the former Gondwanan continent, might be each other's closest relatives. So you might suspect that elephant birds should be down here with the ostrich. Things like kiwis should go with the giant moas, the giant extinct birds of New Zealand. And then you should have a series of South American and perhaps Australian creatures. But the DNA evidence tells a very different story. The closest living relative of elephant birds are kiwis. Completely unexpected. So we have a pattern of relationships which does not match the history of the breakup of the continents. And indeed, if we ask about the timing of when these evolutionary splits took place, these evolutionary divergences post-date the fragmentation of Gondwana. So it seems increasingly likely that a lot of these flightless birds might have evolved flightlessness convergently. They might have independently lost flight from one another, because actually, as it turns out, the closest relatives of the moas, which are these extinct New Zealand birds, is actually a flying bird from South America. So just in the very closing minutes, I want to talk a little bit about the last arrivals to Madagascar. Some of the last arrivals to Madagascar were surprisingly humans. So we have evidence now of humans from a few thousand years ago, but the major waves of colonization in Madagascar are probably only about a thousand years ago. Despite being such a conspicuously large island, it was settled on a permanent basis only relatively recently. Where did the first settlers from Madagascar come from? We might suspect, well, obviously they're going to come from Africa. It's quite close to Africa. Well, just like everything else we've seen with Madagascar, the answer lies in something completely different and unexpected. And we've known since the 17th century that there are very strong linguistic connections between Madagascar and, of all places, Indonesia. So Malagasy, the native language of Madagascar, shares about 90% of its basic vocabulary with a language from southern Borneo. We've got a table here that shows some of these similarities. And it's not only similarities in the words themselves, but the expressions used to 
sort of convey complex ideas. So the sun in Malagasy and this Bornean language is described as the eye of the day, which is a very poetic way of thinking about it. The backbone, I particularly like this, the tree of the back. So it's not only the similarity of words, but also the kinds of constructions that are used to describe particular objects. And there are also clues from agriculture and other cultural aspects. Madagascar looks for all the world. If you go there, like an African landscape littered with rice paddies. So this bizarre kind of juxtaposition of an African landscape with Asian forms of agriculture. But this is joined by cattle pastoralism of the sort you'd see in East Africa. So there's a very strong East African influence as well. So although linguistically there are lots of clues of an Indonesian origin, there are also very strong indications of an East African component. And you can see that a little bit in the genetic evidence as well. So the, the people of Madagascar have their roots sort of genetically from settlers from East Africa as well as from Borneo. So if you look in each of these pie charts, the different colors represent different flavors of a particular gene. So here in Borneo, you see the flavors of this gene tend to come in these sort of cool colors in East Africa in these warm yellows. And here in Madagascar, we've got a mixture of these sort of Bornean genes and these East African genes. Really fascinating history for the peopling of Madagascar. But of course, what all of this has meant is that a lot of what had been going on in the past, Madagascar has been thought of rightly or wrongly before human arrival as sort of a Garden of Eden with all these giant lemurs and elephant birds and what have you. But it suffered particularly in terms of loss of habitat. And a lot of this actually took place during the colonial, colonial era. A lot of this can be attributed to cash crops like coffee being encouraged for planting in the eastern part of the island by the French. So a lot, about 70% of the forest cover of Madagascar was lost in the 20th century. And when we were there, we saw lots of, lots of land being cleared by fire. So not to, not to sort of end on such a depressing note, but what I've hoped I've been able to give you in the past hour or so is an impression of the unique kinds of creatures on Madagascar, how different groups came to be there, and what an interesting and remarkable place worth preserving it really is. So with that, I'd like to close and take any questions you might have. <laughs>